name is Joe. I'm a sinner saved by grace and an elder here at North Shore. And it's a privilege to read the scriptures. Also, the song we read, uh, read from above and sang this morning is, uh, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And we pray that the Holy Spirit is active in your life. We pray the Holy Spirit speaks to you, too, as Pastor brings the message this morning. Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abibon, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased, to, ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as the mother of Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of the musicians at the watering places where they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake. Break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Babylon. Then down march the remnants of the noble, the people of the Lord, march down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they march down into the valley, following you. Benjamin, with your kinsmen from Makar, march down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princess of Ischar came with Deborah, and Ischar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at the heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of God. When did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still uh, at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun, a people who risked their lives to death, dapped to lie too on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan, of Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo. They got to the spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, marked on my soul what might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. 
because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of uh, women, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is the chariot so long coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of the chariots? Her wisest princess answered. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and delivered the spoil? The womb of two or more men, oh, the womb, womb of two for every man, spoil of dried materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dried work embroiled in for the neck of the spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. If you'll pray with me again, it's, it's a privilege to be here in the presence of God, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're here for a reason. He brought us here. We didn't just come. God brought us here for a reason. And we pray that that reason will be that you connect to the Holy Spirit this morning. Our Father God in heaven, what a privilege it is to not only be in this place, to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, as we come before you this morning, we just give honor and praise and glory for all the things that you do for us, all the love you show to us, all the things you've done for North Shore Church and the privileges we have to share with other brothers and sisters of Christ. Father, this morning as the pastor comes, as Pastor Duncan comes to bring the word from Judges and the Old Testament, we pray, Father, we will feel it in our hearts, in our bodies, Lord, how you took care of all those Israelites, Lord, through all those ways in the Old Testament and are taking care of us as well. We thank you, Father, for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you heard, we just are continuing in Judges chapter 5, and Joe did a great job of reading it, and even with a great job of reading it, I'm sure many of you thought, what is this? <laughs> because it's a song, and it's, it sounds very different. So anyway, we're looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5. We looked at chapter 4 last week, chapter 5, and the reason that's important isn't just because 4 comes before 5, is because 4 and 5 describe the same events. It's, the, it's one of two places in all the Bible where you have one event described back-to-back, side-by-side, with two different literary forms. The first is in Exodus 15 with the Song of Moses. Here we have the Song of Deborah. So in chapter 4 we have this historical rendering in narrative or story form, which is very clear, lays out the details. And here we have the exact same event, but captured in poetry or song, 
okay? Basically what's going on is in chapter 4, you'll remember that the Jews had for 20 years been under the oppressive rule of the Canaanites. And in response to their cry for release, God raises up Deborah, a prophetess, who is God's messenger to Barak, who God calls to serve as Israel's military leader. So God uses Barak to lead his people into battle as he, God, fights through this army, ragtag army, to liberate his people from Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and Sisera, the Canaanite general. Okay? So when God commands him to take up the charge, if you'll remember, Barak is cowardly, and he hesitates. He tells Deborah that he will lead the army and advance against the Canaanites and their 900 iron chariots, if only she will accompany him. Okay? Now, God grants the request, but he disciplines Barak for his cowardice by having a woman get the glory, which in a patriarchal society was not good news for a man. So chapter 4 tells us that Barak summoned two tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, and soundly trounces the Canaanites, routs them. Only General Sisera of all the Canaanites escapes with his life. And at this point, the author interjects another character into this drama, another woman named Jael. Jael is a foreigner, a Kenite, who also happens to be married to a stalwart ally of the Canaanites. So she is not a woman you would expect at all to be aiding and abetting the Israelites. Jael, however, proves to be quite formidable. She lures General Sisera into her tent, dopes him with a drink of milk, and while he's sleeping, brutally murders him by affixing his head to the ground through the use of a hammer and a tent peg. As prophesied, she receives the glory for the victory, not Barak. The story in chapter 4, again, is narrative. It's, it's intended to inform. It's intended to educate. But this, what Joe read, is a poem, and the goals are very different for a narrative or story and a poem. A poem is written uh, not to be taken literally, but it's more emotionally charged. It employs exaggeration and figurative language. The intention of poetry is not primarily to educate and inform. Poetry is to celebrate and inspire. And we understand this intuitively. If a man tells his wife she has blue eyes, that statement is merely factual. But if the same man tells his wife that her eyes are sapphires, that might quicken her pulse a bit. She'll intuitively understand that he's not speaking to inform her. He's trying to evoke an emotional response from her. Okay? So poetry is used when you want to stir someone up emotionally. If you want to evoke something deep within the reader that goes well beyond just understanding the facts. In Judges chapter 5, the author places this poem or this song of Deborah in the text to help us feel these events. And one of the reasons why you might not have felt the events is because you didn't understand the poetry, because the poetry is harder to understand than the narrative. Okay? In chapter 5, there are also, in addition to the poetry, which is there to make us feel something, there are also some historical facts that were not included in chapter 5. So it not only it not only helps us feel a certain way, but it does inform us in ways. Dan Block, who is one of my seminary profs and to whom I owe almost all of my understanding of this text, um, he says it like this. He's talking about this poem in chapter 5. He says, 
As history, it informs, so there's an element of history. As a ballad, it entertains. As a heroic ode, it inspires. As a hymn, it calls for celebration. So you can hear from the description of the contents of chapter 5 that even though it recounts the same events of chapter 4, it does so with a very different goal in mind. Because discovering the meaning of these poetic verses, as you probably have experienced, is a little bit of a challenge, we're going to handle it a little differently. Rather than go with three points in a poem, we already have the poem, we're going to go kind of on a verse-by-verse running commentary, because I think that will unlock it. I hope this isn't too tedious for us. In the first section, in verses 1 to 3, we have Deborah making an enthusiastic call to praise God. And the fact that this poem begins with God and ends with God, that's Deborah's way of telling us that the hero of this story is going to be God. And beginning in verse 1, she says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. Notice that the man there is listed second. Now, if you read a lot of Hebrew poetry, that would jump off the page to you, because in this society, the man is never listed second behind the woman. That's never done. So what that unusual order tells us that Barak's lack of faith places him in a secondary role of honor beneath Deborah. Verse 2 says that the leaders took their lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. So Deborah's here praising God for the Israelites' willingness to offer themselves and for the Jewish leaders who are willing to take responsibility to lead. Now later on, we're going to discover that this willingness to take part in battle was far from universal. There were some people who refused to fight. But to the degree that they were emboldened to fight against Sisera and the Canaanites, Deborah's making clear it was God who deserves the praise for that. He deserves the praise. He raised these people up. So in verse 3, Deborah turns and he addresses the rulers of Canaan. And she says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now this is after the battle. So the Canaanites have been defeated. So this is what they're hearing. Deborah is poetically rubbing salt into the wounds of these pagan princes and kings by telling them, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you of the superiority of Yahweh over your wimpy Canaanite gods who has so soundly trounced you. So there's an edge here, if you catch the poetic edge. Verses 4 to 6, Deborah continues to praise God by graphically speaking of the most important event in the battle. And the most important event in the battle is the arrival of the great warrior king of the Jews, Yahweh. Listen to the relish and pride of these words as she speaks about the terrifying arrival of Israel's champion. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. This is a dramatic word picture envisioning the triumphant arrival of Yahweh to the scene of the battle. The scene is of Yahweh coming up from the south. That's where it says he's coming from Edom. He's coming like an invincible warrior against the enemy. Now, it's important that we understand that when the author says that God is coming from Edom, which is the south, that's not just an interesting fact. That's powerful in the context because the Canaanite gods were thought to reside in the north. 
And so God is headed right smack into the strength of the Canaanite gods. That means God is moving right into the territory over which their gods lived and over which the Canaanites claimed our gods are supreme. So he's going right in as a visitor, right into the home field. And he's taking them on in their greatest place of strength. So when God comes to earth, it says he passes through the clouds and they explode in a downpour in response to his mighty presence. That too is important for more than you might expect. It's a slap in the face of the Canaanite gods because the pagans believe that their god, Baal, was in charge of all the rain and all the storms. So Deborah is saying that these clouds that the Canaanites think are controlled by their god, Baal, when they're even exposed to the mere presence of Yahweh, they hemorrhage water in submission to him. And they're going to play an important role in the battle, as we'll see. Verse 5 says that when God passes over the mountains, these mountains that can be seen for miles and miles, majesty is breathtaking, these glorious mountains, they quake at the presence of Yahweh. Now, apart from the rain... None of this happened literally. This is poetry, right? He's using poetic language to communicate what an utterly terrifying thing it is to have the warrior king of Israel, Yahweh, meeting you in battle. If his presence in the clouds issues torrential rain and the lofty mountains quake when he simply passes by him, when the forces of nature quiver in response to his presence, then what chance do 900 chariots have? That's the point. Beginning with verse 6, Deborah describes the Jews' plight before the battle. She's setting a bit of context here. And life was not pleasant under the boot of the Canaanite oppressors. And she gives this painful context in verses 6 through 8. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. With shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. So Deborah here is lamenting the dismal quality of life under this Canaanite oppression. First, she says the roads were abandoned. Okay? And those who were forced to travel could not travel as a Jew on a main road. They were forced to take the byways, the back roads. Okay? So the enemy oppression is so heavy that it simply wasn't safe to travel for the Israelites. Life was once characterized by typical village activities had been shut down for fear of the pagans. In verse 7, it says, this is the way it was until she, Deborah, a mother in Israel, arose. Now, why do they say a mother? We've already seen in chapter 4 that she's a prophetess. Why do they say a mother in Israel? Well, she does this to bring out the irony of a woman, a mother being used by God in this typically male leadership role. As we've seen before, the fact that Deborah as a judge is there implies very weak male leadership in the Jewish men. So God has to enlist a mother, someone whose primary responsibility is to rear children as a military leader in Israel. Verse 8 is one of the most difficult verses in the whole text here to interpret the subject of the verb might just as easily be God uh, from the Hebrew, and it, then that would mean that God chose new leaders for Israel. That would say that there was a new day coming when new leaders would be chosen. But the poem goes on in verse 8 and says, the war was in the gates. Okay? Now that points that the Canaanites would regularly attack the Israelite cities and pillage them. They were always coming up to the gates to take what they could. 
And the Jews had been so depleted in their supplies that Deborah asked, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? In other words, you could go through 40,000 men and not find one shield or one spear. The point is, this is a people who were thoroughly downtrodden by the Canaanites. They were prisoners in their own land. They didn't have any military power to free themselves. This was a hopeless condition they found themselves in. So you don't want to miss the fact that you've got the power of Yahweh in the preceding section, which is contrasted with the helplessness of his people in this one. And again, the clear implication is the victory of the Canaanites had to be, if it was going to happen, had to be totally from God. Because the Israelites could never have defeated the Canaanites. They didn't have any resources. Verses 9 through 11, Deborah briefly moves ahead in time to after the victory. And again, she's rubbing salt in the wounds of these wealthy but defeated Canaanites. Verse 9 begins with, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. Now he's speaking to the Canaanites. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. So Deborah herself praises God for these people who willingly gave themselves to God from the Israelites. And then she addresses these Canaanite nobles and princes. We know that because she talks about white donkeys. White donkeys were very rare. You didn't own a white donkey unless you were a prince or a noble, okay? They talk about rich carpets. These were the saddle blankets that were used on the donkeys. They were luxurious. They were only used by people who had a lot of financial standing. And so verse 10 also indicates that unlike the Jews who were locked in, the Canaanites had personal liberty to walk by the way. In verse 11, Deborah appears to be telling these rich merchants to listen to the songs of celebration by the Jewish musicians at the watering places. Again, she's grinding it in here. I think you need to go listen to the, to the Jews sing at the watering places, which was a gathering place. It was the equivalent of the, of the, the office water fountain in this day. I think you need to go listen to them as they celebrate the victory that God won over you. That's what she's doing here. She's in their face. That's the point of the, of the po- poetry here. In the last stanza, verse 11, she begins to talk about the preparation for battle. This is a fascinating section because this is where the new information is. There's new information here in chapter 5 that was not here in chapter 4. And again, it begins with the last part of verse 11, which essentially gives the overview. Deborah begins with, then down to the gates march the people of God. So that's the overview, okay? Then she fills in the specifics here. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, Awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Maker, marched down the commanders. From Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the land they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistlings for the flock? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So first, Deborah does something again to rub their nose in it. She calls for a song of celebration 
even before the battle is joined. And if God is fighting on your side, that's a perfectly appropriate thing to do because there's only one possible outcome. Then Barak is summoned to battle in verses 14 to 18. And Deborah here recounts 10 of the tribes respond in very different ways. Now the tribes of Judah and Simeon, for whatever reason we don't know, they're not even mentioned. So there's just 10 tribes that are mentioned. They respond in one of three ways. Some willingly volunteer, some refuse the call to battle, and some respond with unique gallantry. In verse 14, we see that Ephraim and Benjamin, now we saw that the Benjamites were very strong in battle prowess from Ehud in chapter 3, as well as Zebulun, they all willingly go to battle. Also, Maker agrees to go, and Maker was another name for the tribe of Manasseh. In verse 15, we read that Issachar also positively responds to the call. So there's five willing tribes who, who go and fight against the Canaanites. But in verse 16, we see that Reuben stayed among the campfires and their flocks. And there was some internal anguish in this decision not to join the battle because twice Deborah uses the phrase, there were great searchings of heart. In the end, however, the tribe of Reuben arrogantly refuses the command to go up against the Canaanites. In verse 17, we see Gilead, which is another name for the tribe of Gad. That also stays by the Jordan. The tribe of Dan on the coast, rather than enter the fray, they instead stay with the ships. Asher, the tribe of Asher, sat on the coast of the sea, staying by his landing. So here are four tribes that simply say no to God. Now we don't hear of that in chapter 4, do we? A third of the tribes of Israel balk at God's command to take up arms against the Canaanites. And again, this shows us what we see in every chapter of Judges, which is the tremendous spiritual apathy of the Jews at this time. Two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, are the only tribes mentioned in the battle as those who are commended for their valor. That's probably due to the fact that this battle occurs on the land in which they lived. So this was on... This was on them. This is where they were, along with these Canaanites that were beating up on them. Dever says that both of those tribes risked their lives to the death. Now, as we get to verses 19 to 23, the pace quickens as Deborah describes the battle. The account begins, the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kaishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So this is the main section of the battle. And Deborah notes that although the king's fought by the waters of Megiddo, they didn't carry off any plunder, which means they lost. You lose. You lose, you don't get any plunder. Yahweh's role in the victory is center stage here, all the way. Deborah references stars that fight against Sisera in verse 20. That's a poetic way of communicating that this wasn't fundamentally a battle between two human armies. There was a cosmic element to this battle because one of the warriors was God. In verse 21, we see what actually happened in the battle because it says that the Kishon River swept the Canaanite army away. Now again, this is new information from chapter 4. And it's all the more remarkable because the Kishon River is normally no more than a brook. 
okay? Like what you, a little brook around here, you might fish for trout. But it swept a whole army away. God had evidently completed dominance over the Canaanites in every way because he caused these, out of the, the torrential rain to cause rain to fall from those clouds over which the cloud gods had failed, okay? So the resulting flood sweeps away the chariots and the Canaanite army, and the horses. And when you think about it, this had to be a miraculous victory because the Jews had very few weapons. They were, they were outmatched. And that fact doesn't tie God's hand. But he instead employs the forces of nature. God can do that. Okay? In other words, God has absolute, complete control over all the elements of the battle. The Canaanite horses get bogged down. These chariots, which seemed so invincible in chapter 1, Judah could not take them out because they had iron chariots. With God in command, they're swept away by the floodwaters like so much driftwood. Again, think about how completely demoralized this would have left the Canaanites, who believed that their god, Baal, controlled the storm. So they're fighting, and the storms are coming in a way that are defeating them, which means Baal's not in charge. Yahweh's in charge, which means they knew at that moment they were defeated because the philosophy of war in the ancient Near East was this. If our God is stronger than your God and we fight, we will beat you. Okay, That's the way it always was. So they're defeated. They're seeing the rain come down. They know they're dead right there. They know they're gone because the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, has overtaken Baal and taken control of the rain. See? There's some of this pagan theology that's important for us to know. So there was no chance that the Hebrew God could be destroyed. As we move to the next section, Deborah takes up this heroine, Jael. Now even though we said last week that Jael is surely not the most noble person in the world, this poem is a victory song. So therefore, the focus is on her undeniable courage and grit as a woman. So the text begins in verse 24, with most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent pake and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. I mean, you can tell the relish with, with which Deborah is singing this song because three times she uses this vivid Hebrew word that we translate sank in reference to Sisera. The point is Sisera was absolutely sunk here and Deborah wants everybody to know of his humiliation. He's lying dead with a mortal wound, sunken, totally helpless at the foot of a woman who'd inflicted it. For a Canaanite general, that's the worst it can get. That is your worst nightmare if that happens to you. Okay? Jail's described as a tent-dwelling woman most blessed. That means that we, she wasn't a Jew because the Jews didn't live in tents. They lived in houses. So Jail is to be praised because even though she was not a virtuous woman in and of herself, God used her magnificently. And so in verse 28, there's an absolutely stunning shift to a radically different scene. We've just left the violence in Jael's tent, but now we move to this intense poignancy of a mother in anguish. Verse 28 says, Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? 
her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? This is a gut-wrenching scene because we know the truth about Sisera that the mother doesn't yet know, right? We know that the reason her son is delayed is because he lies dead at J.L.'s feet with a tent peg driven through his brain. This is a great example of what poetry does to us. On the one hand, we feel grief at the loss of this mother waiting anxiously and in vain. We can feel with her. On the other hand, we feel triumphant about the fact that Sisera is dead and Yahweh's victory is complete, that Deborah's prophecy to Barak about a woman getting the glory is fulfilled. It's that intense feeling that poetry brings to this soon-to-be agonizing woman's world, and the poet wants us to experience that. Okay? The poem closes with a declaration in praise of Yahweh, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he shines in his might, and then he concludes, and the land had rest for 40 years. The declaration is at this point very powerful because what we've just seen described in graphic terms is that God indeed does bring victory, massive victory, over all of his enemies. His enemies are mercilessly annihilated through whatever means he chooses to employ. If he wants to use an army that's well-armed, he can do that. If he wants to bring a ragtag group of people out that don't have any kind of arm, it doesn't matter. He'll bring a rainstorm and sweep the army away. Okay? That tells us when he says the, the land had rest for 40 years, a generation in the Bible is 40 years. So what he's saying is for the next generation, there was rest. There weren't Canaanite oppressors okay? until they again were wayward and walked away. As we close, I want us to think about two very brief points of application. First of all, all people should fear our awesome and omnipotent God. All people should fear our awesome and omnipotent God. And by fear, I don't mean quake in, in, in fright. That's not the point. Fear in the Old Testament in the Bible is reverential awe. It's certainly to feel fear, but it's not the same kind of fear you'd feel from a burglar in your house. Okay? It's fear because he's so different than you. He's so much bigger than you. You sit in awe of him, and you feel that reservation. I'm not like him. He's not like me. Okay? So we need a healthy fear of God in that way. This is a God before whom the mountains, the most immovable of objects, quake like jello. This God turns peaceful brooks into raging rivers that sweep away horses and chariots and powerful armies the way you and I would swish away a fly. This is the forces of nature that send us scurrying. Flood, fire, earthquakes are all at his beck and call. This God mocks the rich and the powerful. He's not impressed with our silver. He's not impressed with our gold. This God has no equal and has and never will experience defeat of any kind. He cannot experience defeat of any kind. He strikes terror into the heart of sinners. A very similar passage is in Revelation 6, 15 to 17. Hear the response of the powerful and wicked men of the earth in response to the coming of Christ. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now when we read texts like this, we should feel great comfort 
in God's great power to protect us and to accomplish his will in us. But we also have to be sobered by the fact that God is no respecter of persons. And verse 31 says, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. Okay? If Judges chapter 5 tells us anything, it is that God's enemies never fare well in the end, which is important when you watch the news, because right now it seems like a lot of them are doing real well. But in the end, they're not going to do very well. It encourages us to make sure that when Jesus returns with his mighty army, we had best be those who are trusting in him and welcoming his appearing with songs of joys rather than those who are trusting in our own righteousness and hiding in terror from the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6 also graphically reminds us that the thing to be feared most about God is not his power over nature as fearsome as we've seen that to be in chapter 5 of Judges. We know that because these rulers were begging for a natural disaster to do them in. What is to be feared most about the Lamb is his power to look into your face at the judgment and consign you to everlasting destruction. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 10 when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a balance here. Although as his children we love, we adore God as our Abba. But we also have to do what C.S. Lewis reminds us to do, and that is to remember that God is not a tame lion. Second application for us is we must be faithful to promptly obey God. We must be faithful to promptly obey God. No one gets to heaven through their obedience because no one obeys perfectly. Only Jesus completely did the will of God, and we have to have his righteousness to be acceptable to God. However... That does not mean that God does not call his children to obey him. And that obedience will inevitably bring us into conflict with our own self-centered desires. Okay? Nobody else has experienced this. I experience it every day. That's why Jesus calls this obedience picking up your cross. Because obedience to God often means death to what we and our selfish desires want. The poem provides examples to both inspire us to obey and remind us of the grave failure of disobedience. So many of us meet ourselves in the tribe of Reuben, who, when confronted with a call to obey and take risks for God, experience great searchings of heart. Reuben heard the call, and he went through some degree of real anguish over the decision not to join the battle. The phrase great searching of heart is repeated there to emphasize this was an intense experience. There was real, genuine heart searching that took place among the Reubenites. But in the final analysis, the men from the tribe of Reuben were no better than the other dis disobedient Jewish tribes. Their searching of heart, their struggle to do the right thing didn't make them any more faithful than the others. Sometimes we can mistakenly think that if we go through a real struggle with God's will, but in the end we regretfully disobey, that that in some way imparts virtue to us in God's sight. The truth is the struggle only honors God if it issues in prompt obedience. There's no virtue to struggle to obey if you disobey. Several years ago, Elizabeth Elliot said, a whole lot of struggling is simply delayed obedience. 
and delayed obedience is disobedience. And her point was that we sometimes find ourselves in a place of knowing what we're supposed to do, not wanting to do it, struggling with the pain that it might bring, and delaying to the point of being disobedient. When the cross comes into our lives, there is a struggle every time. It is death. Okay? But we must never be deceived into thinking that God is pleased with our struggle to obey. The Reubenites did that, and the result for them was the same as the other tribe. When God issued his roll call, they were absent without leave. They didn't share in God's victory. God calls us to obey and to obey promptly to his call. May God give us the grace to hear and willingly obey out of love for God, out of fear of God, for his honor and our joy. Let's pray. God, this is a glorious story. God, it makes, us, it makes me, anyway, excited about you, your power, your might, your glory. God, we just want to bless you and thank you for being the mighty God you are. God, we're so grateful that in your grace you called us to yourself so that we can call you Almighty God, Father, the one who makes the mountains quake and the seas to roar and foam, that we can look to you and say, Abba. Father, that's too much for us. We don't get that. We don't understand all that, how that works. But we know those who are in you, by the Holy Spirit, we've experienced that balance. And what a wonderful thing it is to experience that, to know that our Father is the Lord of the cosmos, and that he will one day fight and he will one day destroy all of his enemies and put them under his feet through his victorious son, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who isn't sure that the Holy Spirit lives within them and that they love you and they're having a, an ongoing relationship with you that's filled with love and desire to please you, Father, if there's somebody here today that isn't in that position, Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, enable the eyes of their heart to see the warrior king, King Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would enable them to respond to that by running to the cross and finding mercy and grace so that we can know you as the suffering servant and not as the avenger. God, we need you to do that for us. We can't do it our own. And so please, Father, now as we turn to the communion table, remind us of what you've done for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.